The following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. This is The Call to Church Action, Part 24, our study in the book of 2 Corinthians. Today's title, The Essentials of Leadership. And our text, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 18. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. You turn with me to the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 10. For visiting friends to Calvary Baptist Church this morning, we're in the concluding chapters of the Corinthian epistle, second letter. With this chapter begins the last great section of this epistle. It'll be recalled that the first section, chapters 1 through 7, had to do with God's call to Christian fellowship. Then the two chapters we've just concluded, God's call to Christian stewardship, chapters 8 and 9. Now from this point through to the end, we have God's call to Christian leadership. Now once more, the verses we're about to consider are highly autobiographical and emotional. Paul is addressing a minority group in the church who were his bitterest critics. This explains the vehemency and severity of the tone with which he writes. Indeed, the change in character of this particular section of the epistle has led many scholars to believe that this in reality was not part of this second epistle, but a separate letter of its own, possibly alluded to in chapter 7, verses 8 through 12. On closer examination, however, there is no doubt in my mind that chapters 10 through 13 are part and parcel of this whole letter and a glorious vindication of Christian leadership. Any local church in action must know not only Christian fellowship and Christian stewardship, but supremely Christian leadership. And so we have these chapters now right through to the end dealing with this magnificent theme. The two remaining divisions of this epistle, for those of you who've been taking notes, might be divided as follows. First, the essentials of Christian leadership, chapter 10, 1 through 18. The essentials of Christian leadership, chapter 10, 1 through 18. And then the credentials of Christian leadership, chapter 11, right through to 13 and verse 10. Then, of course, is the summation or benediction that the apostle gives to climax this wonderful letter. So this morning, we're going to deal with the first of these divisions, the essentials of Christian leadership. And beloved friends, before we're through, you can see how providential God is once again in bringing us to a passage of Scripture which is so relevant for the days in which we live. For whether we think of the church or whether we think of the country, our whole thinking these days is colored by this matter of leadership. We're facing leadership in our own nation. 
The question arises as to what caliber of man merits the right to be voted into officership. We look at our church today and we cry and bemoan that we haven't the Daniels and Jeremiahs and Isaiahs and Pauls and Peters and James. We long for voices that speak out in the wilderness. Voices of courage, voices of determination, voices that don't compromise with the great task of preaching the gospel and standing for the absolutes that are embedded in the great canon of scripture. We've been so brainwashed, we've been so conditioned to an age of tolerance and compromise and lowered standards that we've lost all conception of what true leadership really means. And so I'm going to ask you not only to read and reread these closing chapters of this epistle, but to give a lot of study to them as we come to them week by week in these closing messages. Well now, let's look first of all at this 10th chapter. We're dealing with the whole of it and try and compass as much of the truth as can be contained in this broadcast. We cannot closely study these opening words of the chapter without being impressed with the fact that Paul is in fact addressing a minority group who are his opponents. And amongst that minority group, a certain individual who must have been a teacher from Jerusalem, but an offender, a man who'd been a great offense to the apostle. When I think of the criticisms that I have myself in my ministry, whether on radio or television or in the church, whether within or without the church, I'm encouraged, I'm greatly encouraged that it should be so minimal in one sense, though perhaps that's a reflection of my own ministry. When I read these closing chapters of Corinthians and see what Paul had to confront, well, I'm telling you, we have an easy time of it in these days. Paul refers to this individual in verses 7 and 10, 11 and 12, 18 and so on in this very chapter. This man and his supporters had accused Paul of being weak in presence, untutored in speech, severe in his letters, cowardly in person, and unbalanced in his thinking. What an indictment against a man like the Apostle Paul. Faced with such opposition, however, Paul demonstrates the essentials of true Christian leadership by addressing his enemies with Christ-like humility, Christ-like fidelity, Christ-like authority. And that constitutes the division of this particular chapter. And I don't know how you feel, beloved. I don't care if you're a mother in the home. I don't care if you're a father in the home. I don't care if you're an executive or a college student. I'm telling you, God's called us all to leadership. God's called us all to leadership. And it's my prayer that before this service is over, you will have sung that hymn in a new way. Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer. Make me just like thyself, for these characteristics, these virtues that we're now about to discuss, were not detached concepts that Paul tries to foist upon the church at Corinth. They are virtues that he saw in the life of Jesus 
and he longed to know in his own life by the indwelling of the mighty spirit. And I trust you'll be so caught up with this vision that you'll long for them. And not only seek to emulate them, that's good enough, but it's not far enough. But to have them imparted by the spirit so that there are these virtues within you by the power of the spirit working out through you day by day. Let's consider them. Here is the first one. Christian leadership demands Christ-like humility. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. As Paul plunges into his subject, he is acutely conscious of the boastfulness and unreasonableness of his tormentors. What is more, he's determined that he's not going to meet this display of carnality in the energy of the flesh. So he drops the editorial we and uses the language which is intensely personal as well as passionate. He says, I myself beseech you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. The basis of his appeal is Christ-like humility, so totally removed from the impertinence and arrogance and crudity of modern leadership today. The humility of Christ. Let us observe these two ingredients of humility. Paul calls it the meekness of Christ. Look at it again, verse 1. I beseech you by the meekness of Christ. W.E. Vine, that great Greek scholar, remarks that this is a word which is closely linked with the whole concept of humility. Paul expresses the same thought in his letter to the Ephesians where he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, listen, with all lowliness and meekness. Again in Colossians where he exhorts, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy, beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness. This meekness is an attitude of mind. It's a disposition before God and in the presence of men. Indeed, it is a disposition or an attitude of mind which accepts, listen carefully, insult and injury as the very nails that holds the believer to the cross so that Christ may come through. As a matter of fact, in one form in the New Testament, this very word is employed to indicate suffering. Paul says to Timothy, O man of God, follow after meekness, which word is a compound form. Meekness was suffering. Meekness was suffering. Fight the good fight of faith. But with meekness was suffering. And immediately after that exhortation, he proceeds to describe the behavior of the Lord Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate, before Pontius Pilate, witnessed a good confession on the very threshold of the cross. What my Savior suffered in that moment, in dignity, in shame, the arrogance of unregenerate minds, is something that we can never really understand. He was so pure, he was so sensitive to everything and yet they heaped it on him. All the indignities that you could ever think of. And he stood there with absolute quietness and composure and meekness. The meekness of Jesus. 
Now, of course, the carnal mind defines meekness as weakness. But to the spiritually taught, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. This meekness is an indispensable quality for leadership. Without it, strength of character could lead to nothing short of clash and conflict. Such meekness is to be found in Christ alone. He could say, I am meek and lowly in heart. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. I took my yoke from my father. And as I submitted to his authority, I've known a meekness in my life. Now then take my yoke upon you. And so Paul doesn't hide the fact that this meekness is not something that he can just copy. It is a very disposition that he takes into his very being by faith. It's the meekness of Christ. But notice again, with the meekness of Christ, there is the fairness of Christ. Look at the verse again, verse 1. The two ingredients in humility are not only meekness, but fairness. For reasons I'll show in a moment. Now I myself beseech you by the gentleness of Christ. Now the word gentleness is better translated sweet reasonableness, or even more accurately, fairness. Fairness. The Greeks defined it as that which is just and even better than just. It involves sympathetic consideration of others. In Acts 24 and verse 4, it's rendered clemency. You've heard of the word clemency? That's it. Fairness. And a truly humble man is a man who's not only characterized by meekness, but fairness. Who never wants to push his own particular personality or view or shall I say, force of will. There's a fairness about him, a clemency about him. In this connection, William Barclay remarks, and I quote, there are times when strict and impartial justice can actually result in injustice. Sometimes there arise circumstances in which real justice is not to insist on the rules or on the letter of the law, but to let a higher quality enter into our decisions. And then Barclay adds, by using this word at the very beginning, Paul is in effect saying that he's not out for his own rights. He's not out to insist on the letter of the law and to impose all the rules and regulations. He is going to deal with this situation with that Christ-like love which transcends even the purest of human justice. He's going to try and deal with the situation as Christ would deal with it. Now, this isn't an attempt at compromise because we're talking of human justice. When it comes to what the word of God says, the word of God is absolute. The law of God is absolute. But it's how it is imposed and applied that makes for this fairness, this clemency, this sweet reasonableness. Tasker says this quality was displayed by God very often in dealing with Israel. And the cognate adjective is found in the Greek version of Psalm 86.5. A beautiful psalm and a beautiful verse. I want you to think of it. In verse 5 we read, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive. Ready to forgive. There's our word. There's our word. Sweet reasonableness. Clemency. Fairness. Ready to forgive. The supreme instance, of course, of the gentleness or fairness of Jesus in this sense is found in the story of the woman taken in adultery. Yes, let's slay her right here and now, said these religious bigots. 
But when the Lord Jesus wrote on the ground every sin that they had ever committed, as some scholars maintain, all the ten points of the Decalogue, as some others say, and these men became convicted in their own conscience of the very sin of which they accused the woman, they couldn't stand in his presence and went out. Jesus said then in the light of that, if they can't condemn you, who does condemn you? No man, Lord. So the Lord Jesus says, well, here is where grace comes in. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. But go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come to thee. You will be condemned one day if you go on in that sin, but grace can forgive you now and transform that life. Go and sin no more. There is fairness, clemency, sweet reasonableness, the humility of Christ. If meekness is an essential quality, then fairness is an equally indispensable one. As men and women were so prone to be judgmental and more often unbalanced, in our conclusions, we're devoid of that quality of clemency and fairness which was so characteristic of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul faces his opponents and he says in effect, you may call me weak in presence, unbending in my letters, but I want to assure you that you're wrong. I'm beseeching you by the meekness and fairness of Christ. These were not virtues which Paul was attempting to emulate. No, no. On the contrary, Paul is teaching the Corinthians and all the saints down through the centuries that these are qualities embedded in the very nature and character of Christ and can only be known as Christ lives out his life in us. Jesus living his life in me moment by moment. That's why we pray. That's why we sing. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his power and love controlling all I do and say. Christian leadership then demands the humility of Christ, the combination of meekness and fairness. But quickly observe in the second place, Christian leadership demands Christ-like fidelity. Verses 3 through 6, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. We bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now Paul's enemies accused him of carnality. But the apostle makes it quite clear that his life was controlled by Christ-like fidelity. Instead of attacking his opponent, opponents, instead of attacking his opponents in the energy of the flesh, Paul declares, will you notice in that verse, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, Every high thought that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Here again, there are two ingredients that make up this essential quality of Christ-like fidelity. What are they? They're within the reach of any boy or girl here, man or woman. Here's the first one, dependence on Christ. Look at it, dependence on Christ. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now the human temptation is always to fight back in the energy of the flesh. But Paul had learned the secret of Christ-like fidelity. 
For him, battles were not to be fought after the flesh, but rather in total dependence upon Christ. The Apostle John interprets this form of warfare when he says in his epistle, Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world. What? Our faith. Our faith. And he goes on, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus, the mighty deliverer, Savior, is the Son of God. There is no battle that can ever be fought here upon earth which isn't included in the conflict and conquest of Calvary 2,000 years ago. I don't care what you're facing in your home, my friend. I don't care what you're facing in your church. I cannot what you're facing in that office, in that business, in that school. There is no conflict that you have ever faced or will ever face that hasn't already been included in the battle at Calvary and been dealt with finally and forever. And if only you knew how to celebrate in this situation the victory that was already won for you at Calvary, then, my friend, it wouldn't be a matter of hitting back in the energy of the flesh, but trusting Jesus to bring into realization the victory he won for you then, here, now, in this particular situation. Therefore, to trust the Lord Jesus is to triumph over strongholds, imaginations, every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Now, a careful examination of these words reveals that Paul was up against the threefold enemy here. Look at it carefully. Mark these words. An enemy who dogs us constantly in our Christian ministry, in the leadership of the church. I care not how old you are or young you are. You are a leader potential or you are a leader actual. And you'll find that this enemy dogs your life as well as mine. There is first of all what I'm going to call the legalistic opposition of Satan. The legalistic opposition of Satan. Pulling down the strongholds. And without doubt Paul is here referring to the legalistic teaching of the Judaizers who had invaded the church at Corinth. So entrenched was their elaborate system of mosaic legalism that the apostle describes it as a stronghold or more literally a fortress. Secondly, there is the philosophic disputation of Satan, casting down imaginations. Here Paul has in mind the argumentations and deductions of Greek philosophy and culture. In the third place, there is the atheistic contradiction of Satan, casting down every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. The allusion this time is to the atheistic influence of the pagan world around. Now a moment's reflection will convince any thoughtful person in this audience this morning that this is the threefold enemy we all have to face in the Christian ministry and in terms of our leadership with a strategy and subtlety that are more than match for the human mind the devil confronts the Christian leader sometimes legalistically other times philosophically and not infrequently atheistically and I want to tell you, to try and beat back the devil when he comes in this fashion in our own strength is to go to dismal defeat. 
Only a dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of his spirit through his word can bring us total victory. Why? Because the Bible says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And to any intelligent person who's following through on this close exegesis of this passage, you'll know that that's exactly what we face today. Within the church or out of the church is either something legalistic that ties you down and binds you, but the devil's behind it. Sometimes it's philosophical. Sometimes it's atheistical. And that comprehends every form of satanic attack. And to try and beat that back simply with mere elocution or reason or debate or the energy of the flesh as a Christian is to miserably fail and to lose our testimony. To trust this mighty Lord to be all the fullness of wisdom and knowledge. And to let him, him by the power of the spirit, break through against satanic attack. Is to see those strongholds collapse. And Paul tells us we're to put on the whole armor of God in order to stand against the wiles of the devil. The conflict is not in the area of flesh and blood as much as you think it is but rather against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickednesses in high places. The trouble with us believers is just this. We want to win the battle on our own terms. Why? Because of the inherent pride in our own hearts. We want our intellects. We want our debating powers. We want our language. We want our eloquence to beat the enemy back so we can say, I myself have gotten the victory. And the very fact of thinking that way is sin because sin is pride. And pride rules out the reign of Jesus in our lives so that we're not fighting in the power of Christ anyway. That's why we go down dismally to defeat every time. We're not humble enough. We're not broken enough to let Jesus do it through us. That's dependence on Christ. But the other ingredient, notice, is obedience to Christ. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. As Professor Tasker says, one of the most astonishing and undeniable arguments for the truth of the Christian religion and for the omnipotence of God is the fact that when faced with the gospel, which is a scandal to the human intellect and folly to the proud, Unregenerate men, some of the most subtle of human intellects throughout the world, have been led to render submission to the Savior. Many of the wisest have been content to become as fools for Christ's sake, and not a few of the free thinkers have surrendered their freedom to become slaves of him who took upon him the form of a servant. Illustrating this point, one of our modern Commentators recalls an occasion when Huxley, the great Victorian agnostic, said to a friend one Sunday morning, suppose you don't go to church. Suppose you stay at home and tell me why you believe in Jesus Christ and Christianity. The man said, but you with your cleverness would demolish everything I had to say. And Huxley replied, I don't want to argue. I merely want you to tell me what all this means to you. So the Christian in the simplest terms told from his heart what Jesus Christ had done for him in the cross and what Jesus meant to him in terms of resurrection life. 
When he was finished, there were tears in the agnostic's eyes, and I quote, he said, I would give my right hand if I could believe like that. It was not the argument or debate that moved Huxley. It was rather the sheer simplicity. It was the utter simplicity and spiritual authority of a genuine Christian. The secret behind a convincing testimony is obedience to Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that God gives the Holy Ghost to them that believe him and to them that obey him. When there is complete dependence on Christ and obedience to him, there is a release of heavenly power and authority which are more than match for Satan's opposition, for Satan's disputation, for Satan's contradiction. This calls for Christian fidelity. So Paul concludes his point by reminding his readers that victory can only come to the Corinthian church when their obedience is fulfilled. Notice that in verse 6. When your obedience is fulfilled. Only on that basis of Christ-like fidelity can opposition be demolished. And of course what was true in Paul's day is just as relevant in our day. Triumph against the enemy can only be possible where an individual life or a local church is committed to total dependence on Christ, total obedience to Christ. And find a church, find an individual that's living in dependence on Christ, obedience to Christ. And you'll see the fortresses coming down in pulverization. Imaginations and disputations being made as nothing and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, capitulating to the obedience of Christ. We're talking about leadership. Quality number one, Christ-like humility. Quality number two, Christ-like fidelity, rooted in dependence on Christ and obedience to Christ. But there is a third, and very briefly, we're calling it Christ-like authority. Christian leadership demands Christ-like authority. And this takes in the balance of the passage 7 through 18, which we'll merely touch upon. The key verse is verse 8. Notice it. Our authority which the Lord hath given us. Underscore that, please. Our authority which the Lord hath given us. Not some authority which we've worked up or derived from some earthly source, but our authority which the Lord hath given us. Now, Paul begins this section from verse 7, by warning his readers that an evaluation of a man's ministry must not be determined by that which is purely superficial. And so he says in verse 7, Do ye look on things after the outward appearance? Then he proceeds to show that in the realm of Christian leadership, true authority is given from heaven for a twofold purpose. Now we're thinking of authority particularly within the church and in the world. Here is the first one. The edification of the saints. The edification of the saints. Sunday school teacher, if God has given you an authority, it's for the edification of your children. Mother, just the same in your home. Father, just the same in the family. Deacon, just the same in the church. Elder, just the same. Pastor, just the same. Edification of the saints. Look at the verse. Our authority which the Lord hath given us for edification and not for your destruction. Now, Paul's enemies had tried to make out that his ministry was destructive rather than constructive. They accused him of writing 
terrifying letters, verse 9, and unpolished sermons, verse 10. I'm glad other people are blamed for that. Dr. Barclay maintains, however, that the Corinthians had actually lowered themselves to taunting Paul about his personal appearance, as well as his style of preaching. Do you know he wouldn't have been a great take at all in New York or anywhere else? Do you know why? You listen to this. He tells us that a description of Paul's personal appearance has come down to us from a very early book called The Acts of Paul, dating about A.D. 200. And this account informs us that Paul was, listen carefully, a man of little stature, thin-haired upon his head, crooked in the legs, of good state of body, with eyebrows meeting and a nose, with somewhat a hooked appearance, full of grace, for sometimes he appeared like a man, and other times he had the face of an angel. Then Barclay adds this, we might do well sometimes to think of this fact, that a great spirit is on occasions housed in a very humble body. It was William Wilberforce who was responsible for the freeing of the slaves in the British Empire who looked just like that. He was so small and so frail a creature that it seemed that even a strong wind might have knocked him down. But once Boswell heard him speak in public and afterwards said, I saw what seemed to me a shrimp mounting the table. But as I listened, he grew and grew until the shrimp became a whale. <laughs> Whatever the Corinthians thought, however, other audiences thought otherwise. As a matter of fact, when he was at Lystra, you remember the Apostle Paul was nicknamed Hermes. Why? Because he was the chief speaker. But as Dr. Plummer comments, Paul hadn't the brilliance of Apollos. He didn't even claim to be an orator himself. And for all it's worth, remember that his preaching put Eutychus to sleep. So Paul did have his weaknesses in preaching. But that wasn't the point. Having said all this, one thing is evident. That the Corinthian church owed its very existence and edification to the ministry of the great apostle. There wouldn't have been a church there. And the critics who usually fly back at a pastor or leaders within a church have never done anything to merit the right even to lift their voices. Where have you built a church? Where has it been ordained of God? Where has it been approved by the Spirit of God? That's what Paul is asking. The only setback which the church had experienced at Corinth was traceable directly to the infiltration of the very elements that were criticizing and condemning the apostle. This is why Paul attacks them with rare irony and caustic insinuations, especially verses 7 through 12 here, if you'll glance down. So he says, for we dare not make ourselves of a number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves amongst themselves, they're not wise. They're acting foolishly. So the first evidence of Christ-like authority in the ministry is the ability to edify the saints. This Paul had done with unquestionable success. Indeed, he even expresses the hope in verse 15, notice here, that the faith that had been implanted in their hearts would increase and enlarge abundantly. But there is a second purpose for which Christ-like authority is given to leaders. The edification of the saints, number one. Two, 
the evangelization of sinners. And from verses 13 through 18, Paul deals with this. Our authority which the Lord hath given for our edification, verse 8, and then down to 16, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond. Having defended his authority in the area of edification, Paul now proceeds to the matter of evangelization. However much his enemies might compare themselves with themselves, they could not compare themselves with the Apostle Paul when everything else had been said and done. As his opponents, they had intruded upon his field of operation. The church of Corinth had come into being through the Apostle's ministry, and not only through his local ministry, but through the ministry that had extended beyond Corinth itself. Paul reminds them that his ambition was to preach the gospel in the regions beyond verse 16. And in this connection, he uses a word which is very interesting in the text here, and we could pass it over without noticing it. He says in verse 16 and onwards, but we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. Look back at verse 13 for the connection. The rule he calls. The word rule is the word from which we get our term canon. So we speak of the canon of scripture. We talk about the canon of a cathedral and so on. Now Paul says in relation to his work that there was a rule or a canon by which he measured his ministry activity. And not only his ministry activity but his missionary activity. And what was that rule? Here it was. First of all that God had called him God had called him to a ministry that was absolutely unprejudiced in that it was to the Jew and to the Greek. There was something about the ministry of these minority men that was restricted. They only had one class to which they preached, but Paul had a classless ministry. And he said, that's God's rule. A man who's got authority doesn't question where he preaches, to whom he preaches. He's totally free. And he says, there's another rule I want to give you. Not only am I a minister to the Gentiles, but the other rule is that I preach the gospel where nobody else has preached it. My great ambition is to build on nobody else's foundation. In other words, he considered himself ever and always as a pioneer missionary to the heathen. This is why he came to Corinth. This is why he saw opportunities beyond Corinth. This is why he says in verses 15 and 16, not boasting of things without our measure, that is of other men's labors, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly to preach the gospel in the regions beyond and not to boast in another man's line of things, made ready to our hand. The ramifications of Paul's words are quite devastating if you pause to think about them. What Paul is virtually saying is this, listen to me carefully. Any old preacher can post, correction, any old preacher can poach on another man's field of labors. Any man can do that. But it takes a man with Christ-like authority to penetrate the regions beyond and plant other churches. Applying this personally to your life and to my life, let me put it this way. The evidence of a Christ-like authority in your life, young woman, young man, boy, girl, man, whoever you are, the evidence of a Christ-like authority is that God has given you a leadership to witness in your local church, in your school, in your college, 
anywhere with a sense of complete release and that Jesus is coming through and you're making an impact on virgin soil. In unregenerate lives that have no backing. Any old poacher can go into a man's field and do his work, but it takes a man with authority to break right through into new areas all the time. Now where this is reversed and saints are being divided and sinners are being disillusioned, something is drastically wrong. There is an obvious absence of the authority of Christ. But where you go along the line and find a man edifying the saints, evangelizing the sinners, I care not if he's a preacher, I care not if he's a layman, I care not if he can't even get up and preach, but his witness is such that wherever you go, you find saints are sweeter and stronger. And they have no critical spirit. Why? Because so-and-so's been there. And you follow him along a little further and he's leading souls to Christ and he's breaking into new areas and men and women are getting converted. You say that man has the authority of Christ. Now let us remember that it was for the fulfillment of the Great Commission that Jesus promised his authority to his first apostles and subsequent generations. In resurrection power he said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go, preach the gospels. That's evangelization of sinners. Teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. That's the edification of saints. And that's the purpose for which he's given authority. So we've seen what are the essentials of Christian leadership. Let us not only observe them, beloved, but let us go further and possess them by faith as they're made available to us in Christ our Lord. It's so important to recognize that these qualities of humility and fidelity and authority cannot be detached. I repeat, cannot be detached from the Savior himself. These essentials of Christian leadership are not so, mat not so much a matter of emulation, but rather of impartation and then demonstration by the power of the indwelling Christ. So Paul concludes this section, will you notice at verse 17, and we're through, he concludes this section by telling his readers to glory in the Lord. The test of true humility, fidelity, and authority is not what we think of ourselves or even what other people say about us, but rather what God approves in us. And there is only one person that God approves in the universe. Only one person God approves in the world. Only one person God approves in the church. Only one person God approves in your life. And that is Jesus. And that is Jesus. And so he says, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. There is no greater reward in time or in eternity than to be approved of God and to have his word of commendation. But how can that happen? I'll tell you, my friend. By living in the power of the indwelling Christ so that his humility comes through. His fidelity comes through. His authority comes through. And I care not if that's in an executive post. I care not if it's in industry. I care not if it's in politics. I care not if it's in education. I care not if it's behind the pulpit. I care not if it's in career making at school or college. If Christ is living his life in you, you're going to be a Christian leader with qualities that make a mark in this generation. And not only a mark, 
a contribution to this generation. You're looking for qualities of Christian leadership? Think, my friend, of the three that stand out in the life of Jesus, in the life of Paul, on the page of Scripture. Christ-like humility. Christ-like fidelity. Christ-like authority. Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, stamp thine own image deep on my heart. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we confess with brokenness and repentance here this morning how often we have lacked in meekness and fairness, how often we've tried to fight the battles in our own strength instead of dependence on Christ and obedience to Christ, and we fail to pull down strongholds and imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. We lament the fact, Lord, that we've lacked authority. We haven't built up the saints. We sow seeds of dissension and criticism and barrenness instead of making people sweet and strong and Christ-like. We've lacked authority, Lord. That's why we can't build in virgin soil. We don't have that authority to penetrate into hearts and lives and make Jesus real. And we failed in evangelization of the world. Oh God our Father, bring us back to center. Bring us back to Christ until his life is reproduced in us. Hear our prayer and bless this word of ministry to all our hearts. We ask it for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.